Welcome to the Law Firm Growth Podcast, where we share the latest tips, tactics, and strategies for scaling your practice from the top experts in the world of growing law firms. Are you ready to take your practice to the next level? Let's get started. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Law Firm Growth Podcast. I'm your host, Jan Roos, and I am really excited to discuss a topic that I'm sure is near and dear to the heart of almost any attorney, which is burnout. And today I have David Shar, who's the founder of Illuminate PMC. He's a speaker, he's an expert on organizational psychology, and he's spoken with law schools, the ALA. Really huge expert on this topic, and I'm really excited to have you here, David. So thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you, Jan. All right, awesome. So we were talking a little bit on the pre-call, and you got a pretty interesting story about how you kind of came into this uh, this very interesting realm of you know corporate culture and burnout and that sort of thing. Would you mind telling us your story, how you got here? Yeah, sure. So it might look like a twisted journey, but really, when you connect the dots, it all it all kind of makes sense. At least to me, it's my story, though. So I guess it should make sense to me. I was a young entrepreneur and opened up an ice cream franchise in Baltimore City. And where this thing was located, most of my employees came from the projects. I mean, we're talking like you turn on the TV and see The Wire, if, if you're familiar with The Wire. Like this was real life for so many of my employees. And they were going through trauma that you could never imagine. Hopefully you could never imagine. It was certainly foreign to my life when I entered this and it, and it was real culture shock. And one day this young for me came in to work and she was looking very down. And I said to her, you know, what's going on? Like, like, why do you, why are you upset? And she explained to me that her boyfriend who was either a blood or a crip had been shot and left for dead. They had flown him away to the hospital via helicopter and it did not look good. So I told her to leave. I said, go home, go be with family, go to the hospital, whatever you need to do, just go. And she refused to leave. And I understood that money was tight. And so I told her I would cover her shift personally. She should just go and be with family, go where she needs to go. And again, she refused to leave. And she said to me, I can't leave. I need to be here. This is my happy place. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. It's very similar to when my first child was born, standing in the delivery room and he comes out and you expect nothing but excitement and that happens. But also it's like a ton of bricks are suddenly resting on your shoulders and you feel this responsibility that you've never had before in your life. And that day with that crew member in that ice cream parlor in in Baltimore City, that was the same feeling. Suddenly it dawned on me that I wasn't in the ice cream business, I was in the people business, and that everything that I did in terms of my leadership and how I built our culture impacted the individuals within it to the extent that this was her happy place. And then the next natural question was, if work could be so meaningful and so important for these inner city kids scooping ice cream, if they could find meaning in scooping ice cream, then why were there nurses and doctors and lawyers who would rather be stuck at the MBA all day than go into work or the DMV all day than go into work? Why was it that there were people that were so miserable at work that work was sort of a necessary evil? 
And so that became a long journey investigating employee engagement, which then became a ton of research into meaningful work. And you can't really talk about meaningful work without also talking about burnout, because it tends to happen within the research that the most obviously objectively meaningful jobs, the helping professions of which law is part of that, those helpers among us, the teachers, the doctors, the nurses, the lawyers, those are the people most prone to burnout. So that's when I decided I'm all in and went back and got my master's. And now I'm a doctoral student in addition to all the other things that I do, helping businesses and law firms with, uh, with building meaningful work and preventing burnout. Okay, gotcha. Well, you know, that's a really interesting point to bring out because, you know, my first thing was going to be like, okay, well, you know, if, if you can see that your, your situation you're providing your employees is, is better than scooping ice cream as far as what you think that they can get out of it, then that seems like most lawyers would have their, you know, a much easier job than you initially had, David. But when you mentioned that the helping positions had more burnout than other types of work, what really goes into that? What is the, the driver behind that? And I guess, you know, what kind of things can, can people be prepared for to, to address that specific to law? Yeah, so it's, it's really interesting because when you look at burnout, there's three main elements, right? There's emotional exhaustion, depersonalization, and personal accomplishment or a lack of personal accomplishment. And emotional exhaustion is that biggest piece. It turns out that emotional exhaustion is not exhaustion of the work itself. It's not that your clients are so exhausting. It's not that, oh man, I don't want to go to trial again. It's all of the bureaucracy and interpersonal conflict, all of the distractions, the boundaries that stand between you and doing the job that you are there to do. That's what causes the exhaustion. So when people enter these professions, they are entering a profession, specifically many, to make a difference in their clients' lives. And when they find that in the real world, their hands are tied and they are unable to help or to help as much as they would like to, and that they've got to jump through hoops in order to accomplish these things, it leads to emotional exhaustion. The second thing really falls in line with the personal accomplishment part. When we enter a job, we're thinking, okay, Here's the job description. This is what I put in, and then this is what I get out, right? I'm going to work X amount of hours and do X, Y, and Z, and the employer is going to pay me and give me bonuses based on such and such and these benefits. And that's it. That's the most basic agreement that you have when you start a job. However, worth having at your firm is not going to stop there they're going to go above and beyond their job description. If they don't, then you shouldn't have them employed. And that's a whole nother conversation. But people want to do something, to have an impact. And so they go above and beyond. And what they end up doing is they end up martyring themselves. They go above and beyond, but oftentimes are faced with an employer who is still sticking to the job description. The employer who still will say to me behind closed doors, or sometimes some of these employers will say it to their employees like face to face, they say things like, you're paid to do this job. This is what I pay you for. 
I don't need to say thank you. This is why your paycheck is your thank you. This is the agreement that we have. But in reality, employees most often will go above and beyond, at least at first. And when employers don't match them there. And as an aside, it's incredible how when I walk into law firms and other workplaces and speak to frontline employees and then speak to the lawyers or the managers, the legal managers, what I find is that when I'm talking to the bosses, they will tell me that they thank their people all the time. And they'll list all these different ways that they thank them. When I go and talk to the frontline staff, they will tell me that they feel completely underappreciated or completely unappreciated and that their bosses show them no gratitude. So if you think that you're showing gratitude enough, whatever you're doing, double it. You've got to be blunt when showing gratitude to your people because that's another essential element. So going back to your question of why are these helping professions, the ones who suffer the worst burnout, part of it is that, that they go in with these wide eyes and they want to do and they want to make a difference in the world and then they're brought down to reality because by the things that are restricting them from doing their job and from feeling underappreciated for the work that they do. Yeah, so that's really interesting. It seems like it's almost, there's more of a potential high. So I guess when things go fall back to earth, it's even more crushing and that's probably leading to more burnout. But I mean, yeah. that's a couple really interesting directions that we could potentially go to, to uh, for sure. But I mean, I guess my first question is that like, I know that there's a lot of people and we've got people who listen to this podcast who range from solo practices all the way up to you know medium and regional law firms. But for people, I think a lot of the, the problems you might have, and especially in a newer business, they're like, you know, sometimes you'll hire an employee, sometimes it's somebody part-time, sometimes it's somebody virtual. And you kind of have the machine up and running before you've really put any thought into how you got there. So I guess my question is, when do people have to start thinking about these things? You know, a lot of the times I hear a lot of this stuff getting discussed in the context of a big team, but what does the transition and, you know, first steps look like to, to get into that point? Yeah, I think people often will do things backwards to that point. Oftentimes, they'll hire and then figure out what the job is that they're hiring them for. <laughs> and that can be a bit of a train wreck because why are you hiring somebody? You need to know what knowledge, skills, and abilities, what core competencies they require before putting them in the spot if you wanted them to be successful in the job. We have a huge problem with turnover industry-wide, but within law, very much so as well, especially smaller law firms have huge issues with turnover. And part of that is that our interview process, our selection process is very backward. So oftentimes we will select people based on an unstructured interview where we bring the person in and we get this get to know you chat and we're a great judge of character. So we'll bring somebody in because they're super charismatic. And then the question is, does your paralegal need to be super charismatic? Like, is that a thing? Maybe it is, but is that everything? Maybe it's even more important than for them to be super conscientious. Well, what in the selection process did you use to figure out who's going to be the most conscientious? And then you have the other issue where if we're just basing our hiring decisions on these unstructured interviews, these get-to-know-you chats, then one day you turn around and everybody in the office looks a lot like you because you're just naturally going to gravitate, maybe have more in common with people who have similar backgrounds to you. You'll have more to talk about. 
but a structured interview really levels the playing field. The way I talk about that selection process is I am no longer friends with 99% of the roommates I have ever had. My wife and I are tight, but the other roommates I've had in my life, I am not friends at all with most of them. And we all started as best friends. Why? Because I knew that they were charismatic. I knew that we got along. I knew that they were cool to hang out with. And so I'm like, let's be roommates. That's equivalent of an unstructured interview. However, a structured interview would be me discovering, do they pay their bills on time? Do they party late at night? Do they wash their dishes? Those are really relevant to the position of roommate. And those are the things that I never set out to discover. And that's what happens in your firms all the time, that it's an unstructured interview, and then we let the person on board. That's the most important thing. We need to understand what the job is and really work out what do we need this person to do and to free up our time and to maximize our resources. And then once you know that, what knowledge, skills, and abilities are necessary to do a good job there. And once you figure that out, now you're ready to bring somebody on because now you can build a selection process around what you want to hire for. And when you bring that that person in, it's not, uh, what you make it, you're ready to go the day that person sets, sets their foot in your building. All right, gotcha. So we've got a place to start. One of the things I want to dig into a little bit is you mentioned the sort of convergence that you tend to find in terms of personalities. And I feel like you hear different things about this. On the one hand, there's like this, you know, this I guess this cult of the, uh, the cult of the, the leader entrepreneur. If you have like really, really great values and you can pass them on to your people, then that's awesome. But at the same time, you know, you can see some potential drawbacks to having the one type of a personality. So I guess the question is like, how do you sort of balance those two things? I mean, people talk about diversity in hiring, which is obviously super important, but what about like, you know, diversity in personality types? Yeah, it's important to have diversity of all types because the world is changing so quickly. First of all, you want to be a viable option for a very diverse group of uh, clients, I, I suspect. The other thing is you need diversity within your firm because with diversity, you are so much better equipped to be nimble in this world where we need to be nimble. The, the business environment is constantly changing. And while the legal world is so stoic and, and kind of solidified where they are and tends to move a lot slower, as you can see, the issues happening within the legal world are issues that tech has sort of moved past because tech was on the cutting edge of it. But within the legal world, you still have these enormous discrepancies between senior leadership and female attorneys. And you have all of these discrepancies because it's so slow to change. Diversity alone means nothing. In fact, diversity alone, uh, the research shows us, leads to increased interpersonal conflict. Diversity alone leads to increased turnover. Diversity alone is not the answer. Diversity needs to be paired with inclusion. If you welcome in people with different personalities and different ethnicities and different races and different genders, and then you say, welcome to my world as an old white man or as a young black woman or whatever your world is, you welcome these other groups into your world and you say, okay, 
here's how we act, think, and feel around here. Well, that's not diversity at all. You're bringing in a diverse group, and then you're telling them to conform. And that, and that really causes a lot of problems. So inclusion is about having different voices and valuing those different voices. That's extremely, extremely important. So it does. It makes you more nimble within the business environment. It makes you more creative. And when diversity is paired with inclusion, uh, it actually decreases turnover and does a ton of great things in terms of engaging your workforce. Yeah, it's a clearly a more nuanced version than a lot of people like to talk about. And I think it's, it's really good why we have somebody with your kind of expertise on here to, to discuss it, David. And another thing I wanted to touch on was this whole concept of, well, okay, so we've talked about burnout sort of from the, the perspective of people not feeling wanted, and also from the hiring perspective. But and you work with a fair amount of firms, like what would you say are the most common things on the other side of that coin, which was, you know, basically the stuff that happens organizationally that, that obstructs people from really fulfilling their purpose. Do you see any sort of common things in, in the firms you work with or, or small law firms in general, or even people that are scaling up from the solo to like maybe the solo and the one paralegal situation, which I'm sure we have some listeners that are in. Yeah, I think something really, really lacking in a lot of law firms is autonomy. And there's good reason for a lot of that. Firms could do a better job of very carefully introducing autonomy. So when I talk about autonomy, I talk about trust, but verify. In other words, when you meet with your employees and you let them run with it, you set up checkpoints. When are you going to check in with me? The boss asked the employee, right? When are you going to check in with me? What deadlines can I expect from you, et cetera? And now you're setting it up so the employee has the buy-in and the employee gets to, to be autonomous, but they're expected to check in with you. And now if they don't check in with you or have something completed by a date that they said they would, now you have every right to check in with them and say, hey, I thought you were going to get this to me. So that sort of building autonomy really helps while being secure in that you're not blindly trusting people. But when employers really show no trust of their people, I really wonder, hired this person, and whose responsibility was it to train this person? If you're telling me that you can't trust the person, then you failed at one or both of those jobs. So you really need to bring people in and trust them. I'd say autonomy is absolutely huge. The other thing is just the interpersonal conflict. I think as lawyers, especially trial attorneys, you know, battling is part of what you do, right? You fight for your clients. When my wife and I first got married, our first year of marriage was a wreck. You know, it typically is from what I understand. At least that's what I tell my wife. Yeah, all first all, all marriages are a wreck the first year. But when we first got married, every time the world would turn on us, we would turn on each other. And it took about a year for us to realize that that was the most counterproductive thing in the world, that when the world got tough, when the bills were piling up, when something happened at work for one of us or, or something happened with, like, with our kid or whatever it was, that's when we needed to have each other's back. But instead, that's when we started pointing fingers and blaming each other and turning on each other. So in our loneliest moments, we made each other the enemy, making ourselves even lonelier in those moments. And I see this in firms very often, where when things get tough, we're fighters. So we turn on the people within our firm. And 
Well, not only this, but we're also negative. We have, a, we have this um, negativity bias, right? We're very quick to see negative things. And as attorneys, I mean, it's all about prudence, right? And the flip side to prudence is like this, this cynicism and this uh, negativity comes with that because you need to be super careful with every detail and, it, and it's just all part of the same package. So you are a trained pessimist as an attorney. And so you know that the value is in the problems. When I see my lawyer and I ask him to look over a contract, I don't want him to tell me all the best parts. I don't want him to tell me, oh, this really impressive paper, or oh, you could really come out ahead here. I want him to tell me, <laughs> yeah. right, right? I want him to tell me all of the threats. Like, how could this land me in jail or <laughs> owing somebody a million dollars or whatever it is? So we're trained pessimists and, and for good reason. But our brains work off 95% automaticity, it's called, right? Which is exactly what it, what it sounds like. It's automatic thought. Our brains, only about 5% of our thinking actually happens consciously. And that's set aside for novelty, right? It's why we say don't text and drive. But I have a friend and he texts and drives sometimes. And he's never killed himself or anyone else yet. Why? Because texting and driving, our brains are actually okay with that because we're not truly, truly multitasking. There's nothing novel about it. You could drive to work every day in your sleep, right? Have you ever been on one of those trips where um, you're going on vacation and you end up at the office because you accidentally take that exit? It's yeah. automatic. But what happens when you get to an intersection and somebody does something that they're not supposed to do? Somebody runs the yellow or something. Now there is something that's happening that's novel. And so your brain should jump into action and take care of that. And, and you should be consciously take care of that. But instead, you're distracted by your cell phone at the same time and, and somebody ends up dead or injured or in one of your offices, right? With your personal, personal yeah. injuries. <laughs> And so it's the same thing. We, our brain is 95% of it is happening automatically. And so when we teach our brain that negative things are valuable, that they are the things that we need to watch out for, and we begin to throw all the positive stuff right into our internal spam filter, and we don't even see them anymore. So what we need to do is to start training our brain to see the positive. Believe me, you'll still, you'll still see the negative stuff as well, but you need to train your brain to start seeing the positive and to start recognizing that in your life. And that, and that will have a huge impact on you and every employee that you have. And yeah, I mean, I can definitely see and what, what the deck, it almost seems like the deck is just stacked against the, the law firm. I mean, it does make sense because you know, that, that seems to be the bridge between the meaningful work that's being done and, and the miserable situation that's, you know, in more places than a lot of people like to admit. So right. when we're talking about rewiring the brain, I mean, obviously, this is going to be a, uh, a constant battle. But where do you think people should start? Are there any like exercises people should do or books people should read? Like, what do you usually recommend people who are caught in that negative rut to, uh, to kind of look at the bright side? Yeah, so I am a selective hippie, right? I believe that work should be a meaningful place. I believe that, it's a, that work is someplace that we come together with diverse groups of people and can have a magnified impact on the world, et cetera. Beyond that, I'm very much a cynic. So I'm very cynical about mindset and mindfulness and stuff until a point. And that point is when it's backed by 
science and data. And so these things might sound hippy-dippy, but the things that scientifically have been shown to work are things like what I do with my family. So my family, we're split right down the center. There's some of us that are real optimists, and then there are some of us who are what my wife likes to call realists, right? And so, and so we realized we needed to do something so that people didn't get in those ruts. And so we adopted something that we call our favorite three. So at the end of every day, we come together and I travel a lot for work. So I'll dial in often, you know, video chat. And we come together and we each list our favorite three moments from the day. And some days that's really easy to do, but it's most important when there are days when it's hard to find three things. But what that starts to do, it starts to train you to look for those because now it's relevant, right? So I tell this story about how my wife and I went to Arizona. She rented a car. I was like doing a training for like a week straight and she rented a car. And this was early in our marriage where she was not exactly Miss Independent. She wanted to go everywhere together and whatever, newlyweds, right? And so for this trip, she decided she was going to be daring and go and just explore Arizona. So we rented this really strange looking car and my wife's driving all around Arizona and really discovering her independence uh, within our marriage. And it, it was so great for her. So at the end of our trip, we get back to the airport and we return the rental car. She literally gives it a hug. She loves this car and it's a very strange looking car. And so she said to me, you know, our van is breaking down, you know, like it's almost, it's almost at end of life. Why don't we buy one of these when that happens? And I said to my wife, I'm like, ah, this is, we can't do that. She said, why? I said, because this is clearly a West Coast car. And we live in Baltimore, Maryland. She's like, what's a West Coast car? I said, a West Coast car. You know, have you ever seen these in Maryland? And she said, well, no. I said, because it's a West Coast car. So full disclosure, I know nothing about cars, as most of you will probably figure out uh, by how this story is going. So we get on the plane. We hop back over to Baltimore. We walk to our car in long-term parking. And my wife starts freaking out, hitting my arm. She's like, oh my God, oh my God. I'm like, what? Right next to our car in long-term parking is the West Coast car. We start driving home and we pass the West Coast car. We really start freaking out when we pull into our street and one of our neighbors in his driveway sitting right there is the West Coast car. So what happened? It turns out that the West Coast car was the 2007 Dodge Magnum. Kind of a cool looking car, right? Didn't really last, wasn't super popular, but it certainly was not a West Coast car. My wife and I were not car people. So we had never noticed the car before because it was never significant to us. So I probably drove by 10, 20 of them a day and never saw them. It wasn't until it became significant in our lives where I couldn't unsee them. And even though there are very few that are still on the road today, every time I pass one, I notice it. And so it's the same thing. When you implement something like the favorite three or writing a gratitude journal, you know, say just writing down something you're thankful for every day, whatever it is, it starts becoming relevant and you start training your brain to see these things. And I understand how hippy-dippy this sounds. And I promise you, I'm not wearing like a big flower shirt right now telling you this. This stuff works. It's science. If you want to see the articles that back it up, 
anybody can reach out to me and I'll send some right over. Okay, awesome. Well, incidentally, I am wearing a flower shirt, but that's, that sounds like a, <laughs> I'm not judging. No, I'm just I'm kidding. Uh, but no, that's I mean, that's it's really powerful. And like, I think the lesson is is you know you can kind of train your mind to focus on what it is. So even though you know attorneys might be facing a lot more negativity on a day to day basis, it's being able to you know pick those gems of, of gratitude out of the mix. And I guess it's like working out. Like you know, you just keep doing it, and it'll get better. All right. Well, yeah, David, this has been really awesome. And, you know, I think it's, it's a pretty good note for people to end on. So if anyone's curious about finding out more about this stuff, and maybe if something in this, this podcast spoke to you about happening to you, to what's going on with your firm, what's the best place that people can find you? Yeah. So we should definitely link up on LinkedIn. That's my platform of choice. Uh, we could definitely continue the conversation there. Uh, it's www.linkedin.com slash David also, my website, IlluminatePMC, as in Performance Management Consultants.com. And then they can reach out to me with any questions or if they like to further the conversation, I am always available. All right, awesome. So we'll make sure to include those in the show notes. David, thanks again for taking the time. Um, this has been super interesting for me as well. I mean, not, not a lot from owner, but you know, this is stuff I think that applies to everyone. But um, really appreciate taking the time. Thank you. Really appreciate it. All right. And then uh, we'll be back next week with another fantastic episode of Law Firm Growth Podcast. Take care, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Law Firm Growth Podcast. For show notes, free resources, and more, head on over to casefuel.com slash podcast. Looking forward to catching up on the next episode.